started John 12 last week and we looked at these first eight verses together as we looked at uh, Mary. And we looked at Mary as she uh, anointed Jesus. As the Bible says, she anointed him unto his death. Lazarus, uh, at this point though, in these last few verses that we're going to look at, it's not the end of the chapter, uh, but one of the last few references we have to Lazarus who was resurrected uh, here in the Gospel of John. And we're going to look in, in, in this morning at the application because we see a beautiful picture of ourselves in Lazarus. So let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Uh, uh, John chapter 12 and uh, starting in verse number 9. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that He was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only but that they might see Lazarus also whom He had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death because that by reason of him Many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we're so grateful for the opportunity to gather together in this meeting house. Lord, we thank you as this is Remembrance Day weekend as we think about those who have sacrificed not just their lives but their health, their families. Lord, they have sacrificed so much. Some of them have sacrificed financially in order for us to be able to sit comfortably and study Your Word together. And Lord, we honor them this morning and we thank You for their service and we thank You for their sacrifice and we thank You for their devotion. Lord, I pray that we would not allow this weekend to pass without trying to go out of our way to thank someone who sacrificed such things so that we would have the freedoms to share Your Gospel here in this country, in this nation. Lord, we pray now for the preaching of Your Word. We pray during this time that You would speak to our hearts, to pray that You would open our hearts to receive what is read, to receive what is preached, and to receive what is taught. I pray that You would remove all distractions. Give me the words to say. Help me not to preach hobby horses or opinions, but to be focused on the message at hand. Encourage us to live for You. Help us, Lord, to sacrifice life, to sacrifice wealth, to sacrifice time for a great cause of serving you. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us. Be with us now in this time together. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of the Word of God. The stage of Je for Jesus' death has now been set, as we've seen chapter 12 uh, ends this final uh, coverage of the last or the three and a half years of Jesus' life and his ministry and then chapter 13 through chapter I believe it's 19 as we get there if memory serves uh, is covering a 24-hour period and so we're working our way up chapter 12 is several days condensed together last week we looked at Mary, and we looked at the anointing of the ointment. We looked at the sacrifice that she offered in order to anoint Jesus uh, unto his death. So he's now been anointed unto death. Then we also, in the same passage of Scripture, we looked at Judas. Judas, who is now indignant of this sacrifice by this grateful woman, Mary... Judas, who now was a thief and it was known unto Christ, although it had not been made known to the disciples. 
acted upon his indignation and is about to betray, or rather has betrayed, Jesus Christ. In chapter 12 and verse 12, we see the entrance and the beginnings of the final countdown and day of Christ, up to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as He enters into Jerusalem. But there is an insert in this story about this man named Lazarus. Now we remember Lazarus from chapter 11. We know chapter 11 very well as Jesus called forth and Lazarus came forth. And we know chapter 11 and verse 35, one of most children's favorite passages of Scripture to memorize, Jesus wept. Amen. I know I was given a ninth grade or eighth grade, I can't remember, is eighth or ninth grade, they all run together at some point. Some of them I took a couple times, and so they, they, you know, they seem to last longer. But uh, one of those grades, we had our science teacher, who was also my homeroom teacher. And so we started every day in his class with the pledge and prayer and devotion time. I went to a Christian school, and uh, he had all of the guys uh, in the class. I think I was in a class of 30 or 33 eighth or ninth graders, whatever grade it was, and all of the boys got to take turns giving devotions. And my turn was upon me. And basically what he had asked us to do was take a verse, read it, and then just explain uh, a little bit about the verse. And he was trying to get us used to giving devotions as young men and to reading the Word of God. That's what he was trying to get us used to. Well, as, as you know, most teenage boys do not want to get up and speak in front of a classroom of their peers, especially when... They're at that age where your peers will mock you if you mess up in any way, shape, or form. And because they love you, they will mock you with, even if you don't mess up. Amen. They're just gonna, we're just going to mock each other. I remember I got up in John eleven thirty five, 35, and I had not prepared, you know, shocker, amen. I had not prepared at that point. Uh, and so I got up, and I didn't know what to say. I had, and so I got up, and I said, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. And I said... This passage teaches us that Jesus cried. And then I said, I sat down. <laughs> and that was it. That was my devotion, and, uh, which angered my science teacher. And uh, so I was reprimanded harshly in front of the class. Uh, and then he went on to explain the significance of John uh, chapter 11 and verse 35 and the, the uh, Godhead and that he was all God and all man and all of those things. And so I say all that as a side note has nothing to do with the message. Amen. Although it is the passage we just looked at a few weeks ago. Jesus wept is a very memorable passage. And this account of Lazarus' resurrection is memorable as well. But if you look at all the other Gospels, Lazarus is not mentioned. Now, there is the account in Luke of the rich man and Lazarus, but that's a different Lazarus. There seems to be no tie between the two whatsoever. You have this Lazarus who had Mary and Martha as uh, sisters and who had a place to live and who had a place to dine and who had a place where he could be. And then you have the rich man and Lazarus in the account that Jesus tells who was a beggar and full of sores and sat at the rich man's gate and the dogs came and licked his wounds. They're two different people. They're not the same Lazarus just because they had the same name. That would be like hearing in the news that uh, uh, a man named Don had uh, robbed a convenience store and then we come to church thinking Brother Don robbed the convenience store. Amen. It, it, you see, just because someone has the same name doesn't mean it's the same person. 
So the only time we see this Lazarus is in the Gospel of John. Now we're not going to take the time to follow up with the significance of that other than Jesus is listed in John and the theme of John is to show Jesus as the Lord. Luke is to show Jesus Christ as man, Mark as servant, Matthew as king, king of the Jews. John is significant because this passage of John chapter 11 proves beyond all doubt the godly power of Jesus Christ. His power over death. Now we're in chapter 12 in what we just read. Jesus has been anointed unto His death. Judas is indignant of the anointing and the, the waste of the ointment that could have been sold to the poor, uh, sold and given to the poor, and by poor He meant His own pockets. And now we have Lazarus mentioned once again, verse number 9. Take some time to tell us about Lazarus and something that happened after his resurrection. Much people of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there. He who? He, Jesus. That's the subject matter up in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. They knew Jesus was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see who? Lazarus also. So now we have an account where Jesus ha is prepared for death. He's getting ready to enter into the city. He knows it will be his last Passover with his followers, his disciples. And now we have this Lazarus being brought up once again. People have come. They knew Jesus was there at Mary's house. Or rather at Simon's house, I believe, is what the other accounts teach us. Simon's house. Mary and Martha there serving and eating, Lazarus seated at the table next to the Savior. We're going to notice some important elements that stand out about Lazarus here in these three verses that should not take us much time this morning, but I would encourage us to take note that this is a reflection of how we should be after salvation. This should be defining for our lives after Jesus has made a difference, after He's entered in. Now, much people of the Jews therefore knew that He was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom He had raised from the dead. The first thing that we notice, number one, we see His resurrection. We see Lazarus' resurrection. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 30. It would come as no surprise that Jesus was highly sought after. Not just because of what He was teaching, but because of the miracles. He was sought after because people heard that He was healing people. But then when they heard Him teach, there was something different about Him. But here we see the many wonderful works that He accomplished, very briefly described in Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse number 30. And great multitudes came unto Him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others. And cast them down at Jesus' feet, and He what? Healed them. Insomuch, verse 31, that the multitude wondered. They wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see. And they glorified who? 
the God of Israel. Now this is very, very impactful in and of itself, and it's very telling in and of itself, because who did Jesus come to fulfill the will of? Not Himself, but the Father. And when He performed the miracles, and when He acted upon the godly nature that He had, the nature of the Son of God that He is and was and always will be, everything He did was for the purpose of glorifying God. And so the people would come and they brought to Him all those that were sick and that were lame and those that needed to be healed. Scripture even records that these things are a fulfillment of the prophesied Messiah. Next to Matthew 15, 30 and 31, if you're used to taking notes in your Bible, I would write the verse Isaiah 35, 4-6. I would write that down and then after you write that down, turn to Isaiah 35 with me. Isaiah 35. Why is this significant? Well, Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6, tell us about God. Verse 4, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Isaiah 35 Look at verse number 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing from the wilderness. Shall waters break out and streams in the desert. The Bible tells that God Himself would come and would heal those Jewish people of their ailments. And that this was a sign of the coming Messiah. This was a sign of God who would come and would send forth His own to recompense and to have vengeance. Now remember, the Jews were not looking for someone to save their souls. They were looking for someone to save their traditions. They were looking for someone to save their culture, to save them politically. You see, they misunderstood the Old Testament because the Bible says that these things of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were a mystery. So they were to look for the Messiah and they were to hear Him. That's what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. Hear ye Him. And so Jesus Christ, according to Matthew 15 fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 35. Now back to the Gospel of John. The miracles that he had accomplished in the few days prior to this account were very different indeed. You see, having the power to cause the deaf to hear, here is a wonderful power. Having the ability to cause the dumb to speak and the lame to live, those are wonderful miracles. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus would come and would enter into our hospitals and would cure cancer and would cure the tumors and would take all of the ailments that we suffer from? What a wonderful thing. But you see, bringing back people from the dead is a miracle that only God can perform. Amen. It's a miracle that only God can perform. 
Turn with me to Ecclesiastes. I know I told you to turn back to John, but I want us to see this. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Verse number 8. Scripture reads, There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. No man hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. You see, Ecclesiastes is very telling because this passage of Scripture and the entire book deems worthy to take note of that life which is under the sun. And the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, that Solomon who would be the wisest man outside of Jesus Christ to ever live, was also the wealthiest man. The, the world doesn't even know the amount of riches that he had the wisdom that this man had, the wealth, the power, the influence. But he's reduced to this one truth. There is no man that hath power over the Spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. This corresponds wonderfully with Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, which teaches that it is appointed unto man once to die. And so the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection is truly of great significance. And yet in our day where we are overfed spiritually with light teachings and things that tickle our ears and make us feel good, when we read over the account of Lazarus, it causes us to yawn because we already know this story. But when we recognize what Jesus did, proving not only in Matthew 15 that He was the prophesied Messiah of Isaiah, not only proving that, but proving that He is truly God in the flesh here in John chapter 11, it ought to cause us to respond as the Jews did when He healed the lame, and that is to respond in awe and wonder, to wonder about Him, to respond in awe. So Jesus... Jesus, to give life to that which was dead, proves once and for all that He is God. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no salvation, there's no life in anyone else other than Jesus Christ. Lazarus, because of this, would be different. Because of this resurrection, he was given a second chance. He was given a new life. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse number 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, 
wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's who we were before He saved us. Now look at verse 4. But God, but God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. What does that phrase mean, by grace ye are saved? Well, if we jump down to verse number 8 of Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are ye saved through faith. We use that as, for lack of a better term, and one that I don't like the term of, proof text, because there's so much more to it than just a text that proves something. The whole passage proves something, but you, I, I, I try, I'm going to try not to run that trail this morning. By grace are ye saved. Grace, that heavenly strength in time of need, when you have no control over the situation, God's grace gives you control and gives you opportunity. And so when the Bible tells us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, it's reminding us that we were dead, we had no power over death, we had no power over our sins, but by grace ye are saved. By that heavenly help, that strength that He gives, you're saved. And, verse 6, hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, Lazarus, because of the resurrection, would be a different person. He was given a new life. And at salvation, you were given the same. Before you were saved, you were a different person. Before you were saved, the Scripture says, and it uses the word repeatedly in Ephesians chapter 2, dead. You were dead, dead in trespasses and sins. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan was your father, and you were destined for the same torment that he would be destined to. But God, who is rich in mercy and His great love, wherewith He loved us when we were dead, quickened us together by His grace. Notice, Verse 7, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Jump down to verse 11 very quickly. Wherefore, remember. Wherefore, remember. This word wherefore is very interesting. We've studied therefore and we know that when we see the therefore, we have to see what the therefore is therefore. This word wherefore simply means as a result of. So because the prior is true, we should do fill in the blank. Wherefore, because we were dead in trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in love and mercy quickened us together so that by grace we are now saved. Wherefore, remember. 
Remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. That's what he wants us to remember. Life before Christ was hopeless. Remember, oh, we're saved. I'm good to go. But remember, because of the grace of God, you're no longer without hope. But now, verse 13, Ephesians 2, In Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You see, Lazarus, when Jesus came to the tomb, he was dead, he was buried. Get back to John chapter 11. Verse 44. He that was dead came forth bound. Not only was he dead and buried, but he was bound. And Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. That's the same way we were before salvation. We were bound. Remember where you were? Remember your life before Christ? Remember who you were before Jesus entered in? You say, Oh, I never killed anyone. I, I've, I've never drank, I've, I've never done drugs, I've never done any of those things. But the Bible says that if you have hatred in your heart for a brother, you've murdered him in your heart. We have all violated the command of Christ. We've all violated the law of Christ. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, we are reminded who we were before Jesus entered in. We were just like Lazarus. We were buried. We were bound. And remember what was it? I believe it was Martha that said, when they said to roll away the stone, surely Lord, He stinketh. We were corrupt. We were bound. We were dead. We were buried. We were corrupt. We were without hope but God. And so because of His resurrection, He was different. Back to John chapter 12. Not only... Was he different because of his resurrection? But he was different also, number two, because of his fellowship. John chapter 12 and verse number 2. There they made him a supper and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. We see Lazarus was seated with Christ and supped with him. And when Jesus enters into our life, we are not only passing from death unto life according to John 5, 24, but we also have a new fellowship. Our fellowship with Him is ordained by God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the what? Fellowship of His Son. The fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we were called to. The Bible talks about those that are the called according to His purpose. What were we called to? And who is the called? Every person that accepts Christ is called. What are you called to after you accept Christ? His purpose. What's His purpose? The fellowship of the Son. God desires a fellowship. He wants us to fellowship with Him. 
He wants us to sup with Him. He wants us as Mary to sit at His feet and to learn. He wants us as Lazarus to dine with Him at the table. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 It would do us well to remember that when we fellowship with Christ, there's going to be some noticeable differences. 1 John 1, 3, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say, this is 1 John chapter 1 verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, what are those next two words? We lie Amen. and do not the truth. But... If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. You see, when we spend time with Christ, it should be noticeable. If we have Christ in our life, there should be something different about us. It's interesting that you can always tell who someone's been spending time with simply by their actions and their speak and their mannerisms. Beth always accuses me of having an extra thick accent after I've spent considerable time talking on the phone with mom or my uncle Jamie, speaking with one of them. She says, I have a very thick accent because they have accents and you just get to talking to it. You can tell I've been talking. She didn't even have to know that I, was, that I talked to her. I could call mom on the way home from work to just check in, say, how, how are you doing? See how things are going. Maybe make plans or, or something of that nature. And then I get home and I'll just say hey to Beth and she'll go, you talked to your mom, didn't you? Amen. You know what I'm talking about. It's that noticeable. That's how it should be when we spend time with Christ. It should be that noticeable. When we spend time talking with and listening to and watching someone, we're going to start to mimic them, intentionally or unintentionally. We're going to reflect who we've been spending time with. And so our habit should be to spend time with Christ in a way that it's noticeable. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up, also, raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness, of life. This encourages us to remember that we are resurrected in baptism to a new life. Therefore, we should try to live as Christ lived. So we see His fellowship is different. He was different because of His resurrection. Third and finally, we see His testimony is different. Turn back to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 10 the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Two key points that stand out as we come to a close on this portion of Scripture. Number one, Lazarus' life provoked the unbelievers. Lazarus' life provoked the unbelievers. Look at this passage. This one I think is on the screen. There we go. The chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. They wanted Lazarus to die 
Because his life pointed people to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Notice, I think I've got this point A up here for us on the next slide. Lazarus' life provoked unbelievers. The very fact that he was alive because of Jesus was enough to cause the chief priest to seek his death. Jesus reminds his followers, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 tells us why Cain killed Abel. Because Abel was righteous. Because Abel's sacrifice was righteous. And Cain's was evil. Cain's was the product of his own work, of his own hands, of his own material. It was what he did and he offered his own work to God. Abel didn't offer what he did. Abel took what God had given him and gave it back to God. And the Bible says Cain hated Abel because Abel was righteous. So then he says in 1 John 3, Marvel not if the world hate you. Do you know what that tells us? By default, we should marvel if the world accepts us. Amen. Amen. When the world accepts us as Christians, then we're not living for Christ. Now, listen, the Bible still says, as much as lieth in you, if it be possible, live peaceably with all men. I'm not talking about going out and stirring up trouble just for the sake of stirring up trouble. I'm not talking about being a jerk just because you want people to hate you. That's not what we're talking about. But if you live for Christ, this world's going to hate you. If you live a life that mimics Christ, this world will hate you. If you live a life that points to Jesus Christ, the world will hate you. And it reminds us, Scripture reminds us, the world cannot stand righteousness. This is why it attempts to mock right living and label it as politically incorrect. John 7, 7, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. You know, a lot of times you get on social media and people, and I, I know none of you have social media in here. You're all holier than that. Amen. None of you really care about that. Look at me like a calf at a new gate. The reason you don't have social media is because you don't understand it and you can't figure it out. Don't act like it's because you're holy. Amen. Uh, amen. I know. I'm not on it that much. I have profiles, but I go on there and it says, you have not posted in 48 days. There are some people who post like every 48 seconds. Amen. It's crazy. Do you ever get on there and just put something? I, I just I just put something on there in, from the Word of God. Just post a scripture. How about this one? Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Just share the verse. Don't put any commentary. Just share the verse. See what happens. Now, on my profile, people don't say anything anymore because I'm the preacher. Amen. They know better. Not because I'm going to say anything, but just because they know that I'm posting a verse and they can't argue with me on that because it's not my opinion, it's just the Bible. But before I became a pastor, before I got into ministry, you post a verse and everybody, all of a sudden, somebody would comment, is this about such and such? Did you hear about this? Is this about this? Why are you posting about this? This is your opinion. This is hate speech. You shouldn't say things like this. 
All I did was post a verse. Amen? Why? Because the world hates the God of this Bible. It's often been said that if the world loves your Jesus, then you've made Him something that He's not. If the world loves your Jesus, you've made Him something that He's not. Why? Because He demands a different life. And this world's not going to like it. But it's their only hope. It's their only hope. So we see His resurrection. It caused Lazarus' life, caused unbelievers to be provoked. And then let her be. And finally, Lazarus' life pointed people to Jesus. Look at verse 11. Why did they want Lazarus put to death? What was so special about Lazarus? John chapter 12, verse 11. Because that by reason of him, him who? Him, Lazarus. Many of the Jews went away and believed on who? Jesus. Man, I wish that could be said about my life. Can I just be honest with you here this morning just for a minute? I really want that to be said about my life. You say, you want the world to hate you? You want the world to wish that you were dead, to rejoice when you die? If it's because I point people to Jesus, then yes. If it's because of my life people believe on Christ, then yes. Oh, how greatly I want this to be the testimony of my life. By reason of Lazarus, many people, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Lazarus could have pointed to himself. He could have said, look how close of a friend to Jesus I am that in the moment of my death he came to my rescue. Look how close my family is to Jesus that in the moment of their hardship he came into our life and he rescued me from death. Look how great we are. No. The Bible says Lazarus was hated. Lazarus' death was sought after because many people came to him, saw him, and believed that Jesus was who He said He was. That was the testimony that He left. So here's my question this morning and we're done. Does your life point people to Christ? That's a heavy question. Does your life, the words that you speak, the songs that you sing, the clothes that you wear, the mannerisms that you act out, the actions that you perform, do they point people to Christ? Or do they they're just part of your life and that is who you are and you're not going to change it for anyone? Have you passed from death unto life would be the first question that I would ask myself. If you've accepted Christ, you've passed from death unto life. Amen. And I believe by testimony, almost everyone in here would recognize and would say, Yes, Pastor, that's me. I know Christ is my Savior. I've passed from death into life. Should we not walk in the light? Should we not walk in newness of life? Should we not reflect that we spent time with the Savior? Should the world not hate us because we point people to Jesus? Every head bowed, every eye closed.